0: the book i introduced to you a little earlier starts out with this question i'm going to do the same what freaks you out if you have been in this church long enough and heard me preach you would know the answer to that for me what freaks me out is yes yeah, spiders yep my dad we were in houston one time and my uncle lived down there and he left you know his shoes out in the garage kind of like a sandal shoe more or less or and my dad needed to go out and get something in the yard and so he wanted to put the sandals on. And in Houston they had these things, I don't know if you see them, called wolf spiders. It's just like they sound. Wow. Real big and very hairy. About half the size of a tarantula, but big enough. My, there was one of them in each one of the sandals my dad put his foot in. Oh, I've never seen my dad run so fast and shake things off and scream like a little girl. It was awesome. <laughs> but I must inherited that that uh, freaked out ability about spiders. How many of you would say it's spiders for you? I was going to start a support group, but um, how many would say it's snakes? Oh, Chris, see, there you go. Centipedes. Centipedes. Yep, that's my wife. I'm getting her some for her birthday. Centipedes. How many would say freaks you out horror movies? You can't watch them, don't want to watch them. Yes, thank you. Yes, it's verboten in my house. You can't have those in there. What else? What else freaks you out? Mice? Ooh, mice. Bees? Bees? Yeah, okay. Yeah. How many know what a spricket is? You ever seen a spricket? It's a spider and a cricket. Literally, it's, it's, it has a spider body, cricket body, half and half. They are real. And Lance and Erica had them in their first apartment on their outside little shed. You opened up and there was like 13 of them and they are disgusting. De- disgusting. You would be freaked out by them if you did. Um, There's all kinds of things you'd be freaked out, and they said in the book that there's a freak out zone. In other words, everybody has one in their lives, and then he spiritualized it and said this. He said 61% of thousands of Christians in America were surveyed, and they asked When's the last time you talked to anyone at all, even tried to talk to anyone about Jesus? 61% said it had been at least, at least six months or more since they give the gospel in any way, shape, or form to anyone. So the point of the article was that Christians are freaked out about trying to evangelize. Um, they're not doing it. Um, another survey said that there was eight things In priority list, Christians said, what are the eight things you have to have in your life if you're going to grow? Absolute essentials. And the last one on the list was witnessing. It was the very last one they put on there. In other words, most Christians say, well, yeah, it's essential, but it's probably the last thing I'd ever be involved in. Um, Why is that? Um, The book says, you you know what a Jesus freak is? Is someone who's freaked out by the things that Jesus are freaked out by. You know what jesus was freaked out by that people were dying without him and that's what ought to really freak us out um evangelism is the overflow of your christian life now i'm going to say it's going to be hard to swallow if that's true If evangelism is the overflow of your life and relationship with God, and you don't evangelize, by and large, you don't. What does that say about your life with God? No overflow. I I put this on my paper. It's my little thought for the week. No overflow, no outreach. Witnessing, I believe, as I study the Bible, witnessing is first who you are and then it is what you do. And I think people get stuck on, oh, I'm not good at it. I'm not this. I don't have the technique. I don't I don't know enough. I get so scared. I'm I'm a shot. And then we use their personality as a you know, I can't do it. But it's not who what you do. It's not primarily what you do. It's who you are. The disciple says, and we are witnesses of these things. We are. Jesus said that's your identity. See, You don't do the activity unless you get the identity. If you don't see, this is, see, tonight, everyone in this room is an evangelist. Everyone in this room is a witness. The question is not if you are. The question is, how good are you? See, that's the question tonight. So you can be a really, really bad evangelist and a really, really bad witness. And I don't mean bad when you give it, and the bad in the sense that you don't do it. But you're not going to ever really do it until you are it. And that's what we have to see. It's not just changing the surface level of saying, hey, let me give you a certain technique tonight. And if you do this, one, two, three, four, well, now you're gonna be a really great event. No, it doesn't work that way. You have to see it as, this is the identity that Jesus gave you because you follow him. So tonight, if I gave you a piece of paper and I told you to do this, write down all the lost people that you know who live around you or work around you or are around you in some way, shape, or form that you have witnessed to in the last six months, how many people would it be? One, two, and it's not a contest between you and anybody else. It's a measure of your love for the lost. I read an illustration today. It talked about a fireman who was stamping out a fire literally in a a field with uh, hay bales and stuff, And his job after the fire was over to go around to make sure there weren't any incendiary fires that might still crop up in anywhere else in the field. So as he was standing there, he was looking through some stuff, and one cropped up around his feet, and he had a fire going on right around him, and he didn't even know it until his chief came over and said, hey, you're looking in there, but look down at your feet. And he was was standing in fire, and he didn't even know it. And then the pastor says this, and that's so many Christians. He said, you know what, you're standing around lostness, around lost people all the time, and it doesn't even, you don't even know. You're not phased by it. See, we're surrounded by lost people at our job, and our neighborhood, people that we even come to church here sometimes, friends that we hang out with, they're lost. They're lost. And it doesn't move us. So I want to give you tonight, because... You know, in in anti-racism nowadays and the slogans that are out there, one of the slogans is this. Silence is violence. And the, the idea is that if you don't speak out, you don't just dislike racism. You don't speak out against it. To them, it's still wrong. Can I tell you this? There's a greater silence that's even more violent. You know what it is? It's that we don't speak out for Jesus. Because it's actually violent because people will die and go to hell, a real place, forever. And our silence will accomplish that, so let me give you I only have two points tonight about evangelism, and this is a how to message in some ways, so let me give you that up front there's two things I want to discuss tonight, and number one is this: evangelism is conversational go back, Steve I, you know I, I know I skipped those quotes, let me give them to them um, the church doesn't have a mission as much as the mission has a church. And I, I heard that quote a long time ago. And the point of what it's trying to say is this, is that, hey, the church has a mission, but truthfully, the mission was created before the church came. In other words, why did the church develop? Because the ter- church, us, God's people, we are the means to accomplish the end. Someone was asking me about hyper-Calvinism a while back. And I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. Hyper-Calvinists believe that God's people are elect and therefore no evangelism is necessary because whoever's going to get saved is going to get saved because they're elect. I don't believe that that doctrine is biblical. I believe that God does elect people and there are predestined. I believe those concepts because they're in the Bible. But what I believe is that God has not only declared the end, he's also declared the means to the end. And that is evangelism. Pastor Martin used to say, hey, people don't walk around who are elect with a little beanie on with a red light. Remember that whole illustration? And they don't, right? They don't. So guess what? People are elect and people are going to get saved. That is to promote us and encourage us to go witness because some of the people that we talk to will get saved. It's promised because some of people out there are elect, but we don't know who they are. So here's what we do. We tell the gospel to everyone, all the nations, everybody we give the gospel to. And how do we go about that? conversationally we conver- we're conversationalists evangelists in the Bible need to be conversationalists let me give you some thoughts about that I don't, how many do you think I'm going I'm to let you ask how many more than a sentence or two how many, how many conversations a day do you think the average person has not how are you doing oh, I was have a great day not like that but I mean a decent conversation that lasts more than 10-15 seconds how many of those conversations do you have the average person on a day how many think how many think it's more than 5 10 20 if you're a woman it's probably 110 if you're a guy it's probably five no but the average person 27 conversations a day 27 conversations a day Um, The question is, who are you having those conversations with? And are you thinking about using them as gospel conversations? Now, interestingly, it's a great study, and I'm just partially way through it, so I can't be, you know, I'm not authoritative yet on the subject. But Jesus had 40 conversations with people in the gospels there are recorded 40 conversations that Jesus had with all kinds of different people in the Gospels. Um, Most people who had conversations with Jesus, now get this, came and approached him to have the conversation. A number of them, though, Jesus approached them to have a conversation. Now here's what, let me tell you something about gospel conversations. You have to be a person who is approachable and willing to approach others. I called, I've labeled them planned, planned approaches, and providential approaches. In other words, I have, here's what I do. Some of the witnessing you do in life is intentional, purposeful, and you've planned it out. Some of it is spontaneous. The girl I talked to, my wife and I went recently, I wanted my wife to meet her. We went to Cracker Barrel. Her name is Brittany. I told you about her. She has cancer, stage four cancer. She's in her late 20s. She wears something over her head. She's lost all of her hair. I've gone there a number of times now. It's enough to know who she is. She takes my order. I don't have to ask her anymore. Um, she knows what it is. My wife was introduced to her. I've gone with my son Lance. We've talked to her many times. I'm trying to get her to come to church and give her the gospel. She has a greater cancer than uh, the cancer in her body, and she doesn't know she has the cancer of sin, and that's going to wipe her out. Um, but we talked to her, and but initially that was spontaneous. My lead, latest feature for me is asking people if I can pray for them, and that has just been a great conversation starter i 'm into writing those down now about which ones I think are best and the ones i 'm using but i 've had a conversation with her, but I want her so now when I go in i, I, I don 't start the conversation anymore. she starts it, and so I want to be this I want to say I approach her, and now She knows me enough that, see, she feels comfortable approaching me. The little girl, 17-year-old girl, Sarah at Amari's, um, came here from Georgia. Her parents couldn't, I don't know, didn't want her or didn't afford her anymore. I don't know. But she said she has no car. She lives right across the street from Amari's. She stays with friends that she knows. She's in high school her last year, and she has to work to make it. But she doesn't have a car, so she thankfully lives right across the street. And she said she was saving up for a car, but she's not religious at all and, and doesn't know the Lord. Now, I started a conversation with her, and now I, I go in there, and she knows who I am, and I'm the pastor of the church. And so she, we talk, and, and we give, I give the gospel to her. Um, but it started me approaching them, and now they're approaching me. And I found that in the 40 conversations, some of them are planned by Jesus, meaning he's approaching them. And some of them are people approaching him. But here's what I found out, ready? When you give the gospel, there is no cookie cutter. There is no one-size-fits-all. You'll find that all the people that Jesus evangelized and witnessed to, he did it in different ways based on different things. And I'm going to get to that in point two. So Jesus' evangelist style was conversational. Listen, not presentational. When I was growing up, I was told, here's how you evangelize. You present the gospel like a presentation, almost like I'm giving a talk tonight. And so I was told this. Use the four spiritual laws. That was a track. One, two, three, four. Or go down Romans Road. You know, you're a sinner. All have sinned. The wages of sin is death. God committed his love toward us. Whoever should call the name of the Lord. You know those verses. Um, Romans Road. Um, And they're not because they're wrong inherently. They are propositional things about the gospel and salvation that are in the Bible. And a lot of people have used them. I would tell you that that's not the approach that Jesus takes. I would tell you that when you read the 40 conversations, the evangelistic ones. He does not go with a presentational approach, but a relational conversational approach. Gospel conversations with Jesus were far more dialogues than they were monologues. Meaning he wasn't preaching at people. He was more talking with people. Let me give you an example of what I mean. This is going to blow your mind. Watch this approach of Jesus. In the, new, in the Gospels, Jesus asks and answers a lot of questions. Second one tonight, freebie. Great Bible study. You got to do it. Um, it's going to take you a while because there's way more in there than you think. I mean, you could literally be on it for at least two or three months. Um, here's what... Dialogue, I mean, uh, let me put it this way. Jesus asks, how many questions do you think he asked in the Gospels? I'll let you guess. It's over 100. Close. Jesus asked 307 questions. All right? Now, listen to this. Now, Jesus is asked questions. How many, peop, how many questions do people ask Jesus? 183 how many out of the 183 questions that Jesus was asked did he directly answer? Three. So here's Jesus' approach. You know what he does? He asks and answers questions. Mostly asking. Now, see, when I was growing up, and this is what I heard commonly from people, hey, you know why I don't witness very much? Because I don't have all the answers. You know what Jesus would say? Oh, you got it wrong. You don't need to be good at all the answers. You know what you need to be good at? You need to be really good at asking all the right questions. Because you're thinking you're having to give a presentation. When you give a presentation, you have to have all the answers. But Jesus says, You're not get, this is not a presentation. This is a dialogue. You're having a conversation with a real person who has an eternal soul. So ask questions, ask all the right questions. And you know what Jesus did, which must've, I don't, it didn't, I guess it didn't confound people or irritate them in his day because that's what rabbis did. But I think it would st- a little bit today. You know what he did when he was asked a question? He never gave an answer. He always asked another question. I mean, read the Bible. He asks a question. Well, what do you think? What do you say? He's always asking another question. By the way, that is a learning technique that rabbis use with their disciples, that they rarely answer questions because it generates more learning by asking more questions. That's the way Jesus evangelized people. So I, I wrote down this. You need to evangelize not as a salesperson giving a presentation, but more from the perspective of a satisfied customer. In other words, you're, giving, you're telling someone about something that happened to you and is in your life and has made you so happy and has changed you and I gotta tell you about it. But I'm not telling you it to sell it to you or to make a presentation and then, you know, don't interrupt me, I'm only on point two. I got two more to go. It's not like that. That's not what evangelism ought to be, right? Now, let me give you some more things about conversations. All the conversations with Jesus, this is just my my take on it, and I'm not done yet. Now, out of the conversations, 40 conversations that people have documented in the Gospels, I have found this, that there are are more than this, but a lot of them fall into these two categories of what people came to talk to Jesus about, their pain or their passion. All these conversations about being blind, being a leper, being paralytic, being healed, I mean, needing to be healed. My daughter is dead. There's pain going on and loss in some way, shape, or form. So a lot of times people come and talk with Jesus. The conversations are about pain. The other one is about their passion, what they're really wanting in life, what they're really after. The rich man, he was passionate. He wanted wealth. The guy wants to build bigger and have all these things. And people, so the categories that people are really after is pain and passion, so I wrote down this. When it comes to conversations with people, we need to connect Jesus to their pain and their passion, and you need to practice it. You need to practice it. So most likely, when you talk to people and you give them the gospel, it's be, they're going to talk to you about the pain. The pain in their marriage is not working. Their kids are rebellious. They lost their job. They've got some sort of sickness. They had some great loss. They just got a diagnosis, and they're going to talk to you about that so it'd be behoove us, wouldn't it, if we're going to have gospel conversations to say, hey, my, I'm going to think about how I would talk to people about going through their pain. How can I get them and connect their pain with Jesus' pardon? How can I do that? And then their passion. My pastor growing up taught me F-O-R-M, Family Occupation Religion Message. That's how he said you have a conversation with somebody. You start talking about their, see their passion. He goes, I've never had anybody. It's true. And you talk about their wife if they have a good marriage. or' are talking about their kids. They, oh, your kids are in sports. Oh, my Johnny's quarterback and he threw a touchdown last week. And they go on and on. To, oh, my kids got this medal and they're all, Everybody loves their kids or, or even go after their grandkids, right? You know, you're gonna. People want to talk about them and they'll talk about them forever, right? Family occupation. Talk about their job. How long they're either gonna complain about it or tell you how good it is, right? And religion. Talk about their religious background and where they grew up and and then you can get to the message. But here's what Jesus said. I mean, I think conversations ought to be about Jesus. Connecting him. It's like this. It's like there's two lines and they're parallel to one another. Here's the gospel story and here's their story. See, in their life, until they get saved, those stories have not interacted or crossed one another. But, we, but gospelizing people is where the intersection of where Jesus' story touches theirs. There's an intersection there. And so my job is to say, how do I get their pain story or their passion story to talk about Jesus' story? And, how do they, and so at their pain, I might talk about his pain. Someone's going to ask me the age-old question, hey, if there's a God in this world, why is there so, many, so much suffering? Am I going to be able to answer that? Uh, you know, or this path, and so I'm, I want to see where the crossover is in their lives. I want to retell their story in the context of God's story. Now, here's a little qu- a clip, and I, I might cut it off, Steve, but go ahead, and st- it's a seven-minute clip about a guy talking about this very concept about how to use their story.
1: Yeah, this is Alvin Reed at Southeastern Seminary, and I'm in the beautiful city of Austin, Texas, which is a lot like Raleigh in so many ways. It's really the future of America, uh, cities like Austin and cities like Raleigh. And I'm with my friend Jonathan Dodson, who's the author of books such as Gospel Center Discipleship, uh, Fight Clubs, and the book that I love for my evangelism class, The Unbelievable Gospel also as pastor, for how long at Austin Sea Life? Life Church? Austin Sea Life, uh, about seven and a half years. Okay, so and you founded the church, mm-hmm. right? Okay, mm-hmm. so he's a church planner and a pastor, and we talk a lot, uh, Jonathan and I, about sharing the gospel and about uh, gospel conversations versus gospel presentations, uh, and so we want to help you learn how to share the gospel without freaking out when you think about it, and so Jonathan, tell us about how you go about sharing the gospel and mm-hmm. help our folks here that watch this, Know how to communicate the gospel there. Well, as you know, Alvin, um, a a lot of times when people think about
2: evangelism, they think about, uh, and they might not articulate it like this, but a uh, punctilier moment—a sharing certain amount of information that creates a decision on the spot. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know you know evangelism well enough to know that you know evangelism is a process. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not just a punctilier. And I think a lot of our training has uh, trained us to anticipate uh, decision-making on the spot mm-hmm. and not equipped us for the process I of decision-making. Good, good work. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> maybe just a, a little memorable thing that I can share that would help us rethink the process of uh, gospel communication as opposed to kind of the decisionist mm-hmm. um, uh, model of training. So, okay. um, And this is kind of you know, borrowed from a lot of the counseling that I've studied over the years. But three, three principles to keep in mind. Um, listen to people's story. Empathize with their story. And then redemptively retell their story. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> listen to their story. Um, ask questions about their life. Uh, three kind of levels of questions. There's sur- the first, first level of question asking is kind of, you know, how's the weather? Um, you know, what did you do today? Level two is tell me your story your life, what was it like when you were a kid, what was it like to, uh, you know, growing up, um, what are your hopes, you know. And then level three is down to the heart values, um, things that you believe, things that you long for. So to listen to people's story, we've got to get below level one, down to the level two, get to know people, their history, and as we learn their history, we, we get down to the heart where the gospel can actually connect. So I think listening to people's stories is really, really important. And in order to do that, we have to ask questions and questions that go from level one, level two, down level three. So listen to their story. Empathize with their story. Um, Often there are are moments of brokenness, unbelief, uh, doubt, uh, difficulty. um, To empathize with pain or unbelief or um, difficulty in a person's life Mm -hmm. and to, uh, to treat them not as a project, but as a person who needs to be known and loved.
1: This lets us be vulnerable too, right? Because we can share our own pain and not come across as holier than that. We're just regular folks. We have struggles. And being vulnerable uh, helps the conversation too. Yeah,
2: yeah. In fact, I think one of the most effective ways, especially with this generation, that you can share the gospel is to share the gospel with yourself out loud Mm -hmm. uh, to reveal a vulnerability Mm -hmm. in yourself. Apply the gospel to yourself so that they can see, hey, we both need it. An example, um, I was discipling an artist, musician in the city. We were at a bar and we were talking about apologetics and all those kind of things, and um, <clears throat> he kind of asked me this question. He said, Jonathan, do you ever doubt your faith? Mm-hmm. We're talking about all this you know, heavy stuff. It's kind of like, you know, do, you ever, do you ever struggle with doubts? And I said, well, <clears throat> at this point in my life, I don't struggle with doubt as much as I struggle with unbelief. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of like, what's the difference? Ah, uh, that's good work. And I said, well, let me give you an example. Earlier today, I put out this insightful comment on Twitter, and I checked back a few minutes later, and nobody had retweeted it. Know, I'll, give, I'll give them more time. Yeah. You know? So, check back another hour, no stars, no favorites, no comments, no, Check checked back. Still, no response, and my heart kind of sank. And in that moment, I had unbelief. Unbelief that the approval of God the Father was uh, better than the approval of the anonymous Twittersphere. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know? That's very practical, too. I shared the gospel with myself out loud. Mm-hmm. And that was a pivotal moment for him becoming to Christ. Wow, that's great. Um, so that would all be into this kind of empathizing mm-hmm. uh, listen to their story, uh, empathize with their story, and then redemptively retell their story. And in, in a way, I kind of redemptively retold my story right. in that yes. example there with really the gospel of adoption. Mm-hmm. that I'm loved perfectly by the Father, so I don't have to clamor for love on, the twi- on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Um, <clears throat> so there are different gospel metaphors that we see throughout Scripture that actually intersect with uh, need, difficulty, doubt, pain, um, unbelief in people's lives. And so if we're listening to their story, we're empathizing with their story, then we have uh, gospel intelligence mm-hmm. And the ability to apply the right gospel to their need so that the gospel then becomes believable in their life it's not just information we're transferring
1: instead of just having the information the basic data of the gospel i like your, your term you used of gospel what was the term intelligence gospel intelligence we are aware of the reality of the gospel that's why i love um, Chester and Timus, four statements about God, that God mm-hmm. is great, God is glorious, God is good, God is gracious. Mm-hmm. We use those a lot in our ministry because that yeah. really kind of catalyzes a lot of our understanding of God. I've seen exactly what Jonathan's talking about with young adults today uh, in, in the ministry I lead in our church. Just this morning, I got an email back from a young lady who I don't know what her spiritual background is, but i have been able to make connection with her. And I just wrote her and I said simply this, I said, I'd love to meet up with you and uh, and and just hear your story. I'd like to hear more of your story, mm. basically, is all I said. And she wrote back and said, that would be incredible. She's so excited about somebody caring enough to hear her story. Yeah. And so just, just actually being a listener and listening to them. You know, the Bible says, how shall they hear if we don't tell them? The question is also, how shall they hear?
0: Evangelism is conversational. Lastly, and I'll just touch on it, evangelism is contextual. And that means that we don't have a one size fits all approach. And so I just don't do one, two, three, no matter who it is and where they're from. Um, Let me give you an example ancient contextualization. Jesus said to people who were fishermen, I'm going to make you fishers of men. To lepers, he talked about a cleansing they needed. To centurions who were in the military, He talked about authority. Feeding the 5,000, he told them that he was the bread of life. The woman at the well, he evangelized her by saying, I'm living water. The rich young ruler, he talked to him about how he needed to get rid of everything that he loved that was money related and get treasure in heaven. Nicodemus, he talked theologically to this Pharisee who was really steeped in the Bible. And he said, you got to be born again. Tax collectors, he told them how sick they were and they needed a physician. Uh, Blind men, he told them that they needed to see. Um, If he was talking to religious people about origins whose claim that their father was Abraham, he would tell them that his father was God and their father was the devil. (laughs) Uh, Zacchaeus, he had lunch with him and after he was done telling this guy who had extorted people, he came out and said that he wanted to give fourfold back. And and although he got saved that day because Jesus said salvation came to his house, it was in the context of money. And that's how he talked to him. Good shepherd, he'd said, you know, I want to tell you, I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep and my sheep hear my voice. So Jesus was a person who contextualized the gospel. He never changed the core meaning of the message. He always put it out there that he was the one that they needed to put their faith in. Obviously, he hadn't died on the cross yet, but that was the the content never changes. But the contextualization of it, in other words, how I present it and who I'm presenting to always changes. It's very unique. And so it's not that I'm going to say the first time, you're a sinner, Jesus is a savior, he died for you. And those are all points that I probably will get to in the process of talking to someone and say all those things here and there. But what I'm going to do is kind of put it in the context of their life. I told you a couple weeks ago, my friend Thomas, who was here, owned a truck company. And so I told him about what it means to have Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that he won't just be an, an independent trucker in your company, that you do with some things for God and listen to him. No, he wants to take over your company. He wants to be the owner, not just help you run it. He wants to run it. And you're going to have to ask him permission and how you're going to do things because it's his company now. And, and that's what turned the lights on, gospel lights on for him at Outback, and he's, he got saved, professed Christ. I, my wife and I are talking with his uh, wife tomorrow for lunch. Uh, I, she's Brazilian, I don't know much about her yet, but I'm gonna learn her culture and her context and try to present the gospel in such a way that she can grasp it. Um, I've talked to many people from Haiti in, in grocery lines or in, in the DMV and other places I've gone. And I've been to Haiti four times, so I know enough to say, hey, if you, uh, you know, I say a few words in Haitian or Creole, and, you know, and then I, it opens the door for me, and I'm able to say enough about that, and I tell them I've been there, and then they'll listen to me. Um, so I've introduced things by saying something about their nation. I've really worked at for years um, about being able to know what your accent, I know the difference between being Nigerian and Liberian, and I know that when you're in Liberia, the guy I met in Walmart the other day, and talked to him right away, I knew he was from Monrovia because I've heard that accent in our church, and I've heard it all over places. And when you know. And and I know the difference between Ecuadorian and Colombian and Peruvian and those different ones. I've heard all the different, and Puerto Rican. I know how they speak Spanish, and I know how they say things and the accent and how they end their words. There's a difference. When I lived in in London, there's a difference between Irish and Scottish and English. They all bleed in a hut. And if you're Welsh or you live in the Cotswolds, there's a difference between how you say your words and how you end up in a high a high pitch instead of a low pitch. I, I mean, over all the years, I've, I've tried purposely to do that because it gives me a chance to get into their lives because their culture means something to them. And typically, believe it or not, and I'm not saying this because of anything, but when you're an American and you go outside the country and you would know something about their culture and about their language and background, they don't, they believe most people who are in America are stuck on themselves and they're rich snobs. That's be about the, the way I've seen it. But when you take the time to care about them and you know something about them and their culture and their background and their race, it blows their mind. I've never had one conversation about the gospel with someone that they didn't receive. But, you, but that's what Jesus did. Um, he contextualized it. And, and now give me, now I'm gonna, I have to close because our time's up. Um, the trucking company was a contextualization. I've given sporting talks to guys about golf. And if you, if you know anything about golf, do you know what a mulligan is, Bob? What's a mulligan? A do-over. a do-over, right? And I learned this illustration. Arnold Palmer, one of the greatest golfers in his day, if not all time, to some degree, um, he had a 12. The par On a par four, he had a 12. And to this day, there is a carved uh, sign, something that says Arnold Palmer got a 12 on this hole. And everybody who plays it, felt, I feel pretty good about myself because I, I, did, I got better than he did. And he's in, but but a mulligan is you get to do over. Even Arnold Palmer had a bad day. And I use that to golfers and say, you know what the gospel is? That you don't you don't you're not shooting hole in one every time. I mean, you, you may even shoot par, but you can't get to heaven by shooting par. Not even a few birdies. You got to, only Jesus shot a hole in one every time. And and I've used golf and sports that different way. I've talked about my daughter's a nurse, so I talked about medical stuff and her hearing problem. I've gospelized people by saying, you know, you're deaf. My daughter was deaf. Let me tell you about. How she was. I've done it at funerals and weddings. I've done it recently with pandemics. I said, do you know there's a worse pandemic? There's been millions of people affected by this one. Do you know everyone there's a pandemic where every person in the world's been affected by it? Every single one of them. And they're all gonna die from it. Every one of them. And guess what? There's only one vaccine and it's not Pfizer or Moderna or any of those. It's Jesus, but but I'm contextualizing it in a conversation where they're very excited. Are you getting the vaccine? Are you the, Did you wear your mask? I hate masks. I'm going. So okay. So let's talk about masks. You know, are you wearing a mask? No, I'm not wearing one. But are you? No, I'm not. Yeah, but you might be though. Are you wearing one spiritually? But so so I might be able to use those things. And I, I've also, believe it or not, even though it's a little scary, politics, racism, sexuality. I've, I've tried to work through in my mind when people ask me questions, and when, especially when they find I'm a pastor. What do you think about this? I had a lady today. I didn't get a chance to say anything to her. My neighbor. I'm walking down. with My wife and, and she goes, Hey, do you know they're trying to build a warehouse on this empty thing down the road here, in this empty lot, and they're going to put they have large semi trailers, com, trucks coming out of this, and this big warehouse. And you know we got we're lived on here. I don't want our street having that. She goes, Are you going to be there at the meeting tomorrow night because we're going to vote it down. She's talking to me, and I'm thinking in my mind, oh, how am I going to, and I'm stopping to think like, okay, trucking, how can I work this out, you know? And then, but she was passing papers out, and she was just making sure I was there. She didn't really want to talk to me about it. But Brian and Patricia are my neighbors right here, and I talk to them all the time. We bring them chocolate chip cookies. We're trying to do things, but, you know, I'm going to go back to her sometime and ask her how it went, and I'm going to tell her, uh, you know, I'm trying to think through. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm going to think through how I can use that conversation. But that's, see, but we're on the mission. This is how we think, This is how Jesus thought. For Jesus, literally, can I say, every conversation in his mind could be a gospel conversation. And he was ready. He was ready. Not with all the right answers, all the right questions. But it flowed out of his life. It wasn't a technique he learned. It wasn't something he added on. It wasn't an additional thing. Listen, it was who he was. If you want to become a Jesus evangelist, you've got to start with having his heart. And then you can follow his ways. But you've got to start with identity. If it's who you are, I'm on mission with Jesus. And if you really are, then you're going to have gospel conversations and you'll use gospel contextualization and you'll say, God, I'm going to pray and I'm going to talk for you. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us. I know, Father, that guilt trips and making people feel bad because they haven't done enough evangelism. It doesn't in the end work. It doesn't have lasting consequences. Father, it's only when we make real changes, deep changes about our identity and who we are and what, the, what matters most in this life and what really is important to Jesus that we'll freak out about the things that he freaks out about. God, we just want to be like you, honestly. And we're far short of it, myself included. God, help us. Lord, the song I I think of tonight, Blessed Assurance, that phrase, it says, Lost in His love. Father, if we were lost in your love, we would love the lost. Help us to be that the more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.